Another week, another episode. Today, I have a conversation with Mike Gordon, the former owner of Chilkoot Charlie's, a famous bar along Spinard Road in Anchorage, Alaska. Mike ran Coots for 45 years. He's the kind of successful entrepreneur that was indicative of Alaskan businesses in the 70s and the 80s, back when everyone was doing cocaine and the state was fat off oil money. We get into the early days of Coots, how the late night scene in Anchorage has changed since the 70s, and how you shouldn't own a bar if you can't live with the repercussions of a late night crowd. Okay, on to the company men. Trina Duber, Seward Brewing Company, David North, Crystal Liska, Derek Adolph, Blue and Gold Board Shop, Shane Robinson, and the newest company man, my mom, Sharon Liska. Throughout my life, I've watched my mom pursue her passions and overcome adversity by being the badass that she is. From being one of the first female stockbrokers in Alaska to doing what she does now, a CNS at the NICU at Providence Hospital, she's an inspiration to me every day. Thank you for always being so supportive, Mom. I love you. As always, if you enjoy this podcast, give it a review on iTunes. You can also support it by subscribing to the Crude Patreon at patreon.com slash crude magazine. Since last week's episode, the Crude Patreon has gone up almost $100. It's over $670 a month right now. Thank you to all the listeners, especially the patrons who support this podcast. Okay, back to Mike. I was lucky to talk to him when I did. He splits his time between Anchorage and Halibut Cove, spending most of his time in Halibut Cove, maintaining his property, and working on his book, Learning the Ropes, an Alaskan memoir, which will be available mid to late March. So it was pretty random that he happened to be in town when I sent him an email the other day. But he was, and he was more than happy to sit down and talk to me about his business and his life. So here he is, Mike Gordon. Mike is hot. Mike's hot? Mike's hot. Is it recording? It's recording. That's what that means, dude. Crude conversations. Listen more, then you talk. Go to work! Sounds good. Good? All right, so when I first got here, you told me about your new book, and how, would you say it was banned in China? Banned and confiscated. Banned and confiscated in China. You want, you want to tell me a little bit about that? Well, um, my publisher here in Anchorage, Todd Communications, uh, gave me the impression that it was going to be printed in Hong Kong. But it turns out that that's just where his contact was. Um, it, it wasn't really an issue at the time. When I heard Hong Kong, I thought, well, that'll be okay, I guess. Um, it turns out that his contact was in Hong Kong, but the actual printing was done on the mainland. And um, at a certain point, he contacted me and said uh, that the Chinese government had noticed a couple of pictures in the book that were taken in Tibet. And... Uh, he wanted me to confirm that, and I said, yeah, they were. And I said, if if they read that chapter, they're not going to like it. Well, it turns out that they didn't. Um, I made some comments about the friendship bridge between Nepal and Tibet being called the friendship bridge because it was just wide enough for a Chinese tank to get over it if <laughs> reassurance of that friendship was ever required. And I also mentioned that I'd been to Lhasa, um, not too long ago, and that I saw the expression of that in in Tibet too, in in Lhasa, with the young Chinese soldiers uh, in their machine gun emplacements all around the top of Chokar Square in Lhasa, uh, and a few other things too. I also told the story of how Shelley and I made up these. Shelley, my wife, we made up a hundred little stickers of a gesticulating. Dalai Lama and packed them into my stuff and took them into Tibet. And uh, Why did you do that? Well, to give them to the people there. Um, I, we just thought it would be a nice thing to do. Of course, it was... Um, you might also just come to the conclusion that it was stupid. <laughs> so you thought that it would be nice to... Well, I thought it, it was kind of my... Um, my attempt to... Uh, show my support for the Tibetan people. 
we thought that they would be well received. We had no idea. I mean, they I practically started riots when I would pass these things out. And one time in Shigar, which was the closest actual community city to base camp on the north side of Everest, I uh, passed a couple of them out to a couple of little girls in a square in front of this building where I was staying. And they were playing around with them, and a couple of ladies came. I was about a block away at that time. A couple of ladies came over to the little girls, and the little girls, I could tell, were showing them the buttons on their lapels, and, and then they pointed at me. So I tried to become obscure, <laughs> and pretty soon I looked over there again, and there was a Chinese soldier, an armed Chinese soldier, and they were showing him the buttons, and he was now looking over at me. <laughs> <laughs> you were caught. I was. I was uh, pretty uh, pretty worried about it. Fortunately, the soldier kept on walking, and, and when he got out of sight, I went and buried the few that, that I had left on me behind the building. Wait, so you buried these gesticulating Dalai Lamas? The ones that I still had on my body. I had more in my gear. <laughs> <laughs> but you had to get rid of the contraband. I got rid of the ones that were on me, yeah. There had been an incident I was, that I was aware of where a, a French woman, no, an English woman, um, had been over there before I got there, and she had on a T-shirt with a picture of Phil Silvers on it. Um, and who's Phil Silvers? Well, he, he was uh, the guy that played Captain Bilko in a TV series. Okay. And he was bald-headed, and the Chinese soldiers saw this thing, and they took it to be the Dalai Lama, and they tried to rip it off her body. They made it create an international incident. Jeez. So I was well aware of what the response to doing what I was doing might create. Um, I did it anyway. Uh, How long ago was this? This was in 19, 1990. So you're pretty worldly. You, you've traveled a lot. Done a lot of traveling, yeah. Every continent. Every continent. Yeah. So what has been your favorite place you visited? The place that really got into my skin, into my blood, was uh, was Africa. It's the only place I've ever been that's affected me kind of the way Alaska has. Um, I was really fascinated by Africa. In, in what way did it affect you? Well, I, I just... Uh, I can remember after climbing Kilimanjaro and we got back down to the hotel sitting there in the evening on the veranda of the hotel with a, you know, a heavy mist around the building and listening to these African kids singing a song in a school or a church nearby. Know, it was just enchanting. And standing on top of Kilimanjaro, it was a beautiful day and Clouds covered everything. Uh, beautiful up where I was. I was above the clouds. But, I mean, there were all these clouds out there, and I could see the highest mountain in Kenya sticking up through the clouds to Mount Kenya. I don't know. It's just beautiful. It's such a big land. It's so, so impressive. In the same way that Alaska is. Yeah. Yeah, it was just magical. And then, of course, we afterwards... We went out to the Maasai Mara and saw the animals and took photos of them. That was, that was just amazing. And so when you travel, are you traveling for pleasure or are you traveling for, um, for some other reason? Well, most of the international traveling that I've done has been for pleasure. A lot of the traveling around the United States has been looking for bands um, for Chilkoots. Yeah, my managers and I, you know, brought up bands from all over the country for many years. From as far away as uh, Pittsburgh and Key West to, you know, Portland and Seattle and San Diego and Hawaii. And toward the end, we were getting most of our bands out of the south from Texas and Florida. So we did an awful lot of traveling around the country. Minneapolis also, we got, we got some really good bands out of Minneapolis. One of the better bands we had over the years, Pretty Boy, we got out of Minneapolis. We, uh, my manager and I showed up there on a Sunday night, and we grabbed the local 
entertainment magazine off the stands. And we had an agent there uh, at the Good Music Agency. And, uh, and I saw this ad for a band called Pretty Boy that was playing in some club. And, and I called him up and said we were going to go out and look around on our own that night and we were going to go see this band. And I, he said, oh, they're great, but they'll never go to Alaska. So we went over there and I walked into this room and here were these uh, four long-haired, good-looking guys, really good musicians. Pretty boys. Yeah, they were. <laughs> <laughs> the lead singer who stayed here for years after we hired them and they worked for us, Dennis Lind, uh, entertaining as a solo. He's up in front. On the, he's the front guy. He's got no shoes on. He's wearing pink Levi's and no shirt and this long blonde hair. And the dance floor was full of beautiful girls dancing with each other. And uh, I thought, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> they took a break, and I just walked up to the stage with my card and told him who I was and asked him if there was any possibility he'd want to come to Alaska to play at my club. And he said, why not? And is that typically how, how it went, scouting out bands? You would just show up to a city, pick up the, you know, the alt weekly newspaper or, you know, wherever you would find the calendar of events in that city. And then you just kind of go to the bar that they're playing at or what? Well, it, it, it depended on whether we had an agent in that area or not. Um, we could, we could operate either way. I preferred actually to use agents if I could find one that was trustworthy, one that wouldn't waste my time. Yeah. Um, because, you know, if you're using an agent, uh, costs you a little bit more money, but you've also got a little bit more control in dealing with the bands also, um, f from another standpoint, you know, well, I, it, it just depended. Um, if, if we could find a band on our own without getting an agent involved, we, we, we were perfectly ready to do that. Cause they don't get their cut. Right. But, you know, for covering lots of territory and, and being able to focus on the best bands in a particular area, if you had a really good agent, it was worth dealing with it. So we would, if we went to an area where there was no agent, um, that was fine. We just, you know, get the alt magazine and look around on our own. Um, otherwise, uh, we'd get there and the agent would have a few nights scheduled for us to look at different bands that, you know, he was familiar with. Uh, but you always had to see the band, and you always had to see them in a live venue. I made the mistake of not doing that. I never did it again. What was that story like? Well, you can't you can't go see a band that uh, that just sets up and plays for you. Um, it just doesn't work. You got to see them in a live venue and how they interact with the public. So, how long does that take? I mean, can you take me through? Maybe maybe a bad situation? Maybe uh, where you show up to well, a city? Well, and... a lot of them were bad situations. <laughs> the rumor around the club for years was that, you know, my managers and I would go out there and, um, you know, stay in nice hotels and go out to dinner and have nice wines every night and blah, 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 blah. Um, which we did. But that wasn't the end of it. I mean, there were plenty of times when, uh, you know, you were you know, looking at bands and, you know, you've been sent someplace that's an hour and a half drive both ways and the band sucks and you'd rather be at home and you're tired and maybe it's toward the end of the trip. And I mean, you got, you're out every night doing mm -hmm. this and sometimes you got to see three or four bands in one night. And I remember one time we, we were in Hawaii and uh, we flew from Hawaii to Las Vegas to deal with an agent in Las Vegas that was going to take us to a band in Barstow, which is a long drive from Las Vegas, like four and a half hours. Yeah. And we fly in to Las Vegas from Honolulu. We got time to put our bags in our hotel rooms at the Caesar, and we get into this Camaro that's packed with stuff. We barely got, I mean, it wasn't a very comfortable car. Drive four and a half hours to Barstow. Uh, for the last set of a shitty band, <laughs> get in the car and drive back to Las Vegas. You know, I mean, there were lots of nights like that. Fruitless it, adventures. Yeah. Oh, just, it was a lot of work. 
my wife had believed the stories and you know about how we just had a good time right mm -hmm. so she went on one of these trips with us to to vancouver and and actually went out with us she was in the car with us the whole night and that was the last night that she went out with us. Look, she got to know Roomster. The Roomster was number real well at the hotel. Yeah. And she never went on another trip. Because <laughs> she saw the reality well, She might have gone on one or two other trips, but she didn't go out and look for the bands. She got familiar with room service in the hotel. So when these bands came up here and say they're they're staying for, for a week, two weeks, right? There's a an apartment, right, that, yeah. that they can stay in. Yeah. It was, called, of, it was called the crack house. Really? Why, why was it called the crack house? <laughs> why do you think? <laughs> because because when, band, when bands stay in a house for very any period of time, they're, they're very destructive. I mean, the, the lower the caliber of band, the worse the, they are as tenants, as you can imagine. I mean, if it's an A band and they're really serious musicians and all that, they're generally a higher quality of person also. Mm -hmm. But we would all frequently bring up B bands that are party bands, you know, that they're less expensive, and but they're harder on the furniture. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we provided them with a place to stay and, uh, and an automobile. Um, and, uh, you know, we... Became friends with a lot of them over the years. And the, we would take articles with us to hand out to them. Because in a lot of places, when you first got into a, an area, you know, down south, you never heard of Choku Charlie's. And the idea of going to Alaska is like, boo, you know. Mm -hmm. So you first had to kind of convince them that it was a good gig. And once you brought one of the bands up here for a gig, they would go back and tell everybody that it was a great gig and then it wasn't that hard to get other bands to come up but you know when you're new to an area it kind of was a struggle at, at first yeah okay so you've you've mentioned it so far a few times but Chilku charlie's so for those who may not know what that is could you give me a little synopsis well it was my business for 45 years um started out as a 1500 square foot bar sandwiched in between a couple other businesses with four parking spaces out in front um, on Smenard Road and grew into a 15,000 square foot uh, nightclub operation with three dance floors, three stages, and an occupancy of a thousand people. You know, we had bands from all over the country playing <clears throat> and DJs. And over the years, we... Um, co-promoted and sponsored um, bands at, at the Sullivan Arena and out in the parking lot next to the club. Um, we set sales records nationally for everything from St. Pauli Girl to Red Bull. We were listed in Playboy magazine in 1980 as, well, we were first in the list of the best 23 bars in America. So the place was unarguably, still is, internationally known. Mm -hmm. And when did it start? I opened it up January 1st of 1970. Chilkoots is kind of this, uh, it's a bunch of bars under the roof of kind of one bar, right? Mm -hmm. was, there, was there a first bar in there? There was. It's, it's the long bar, what's called the long bar right now. That was the only bar originally. And I just kept adding on to it. At one time, I had a Choku Charlie's uh, in Anchorage and one in Girdwood and one in Fairbanks all at the same time. And uh, the ones in Fairbanks and Girdwood, although, you know, they were successful and they they proved that the, the theme could be transported and used elsewhere. My idea was to open up a couple of them up here and then uh, open up one out in Seattle or someplace. And uh, and it, it worked, um, except that neither one of them made money. I got to Fairbanks uh, about a year before the pipeline construction started and everybody in town was chasing the same dollar. Um, and then when it finally did take off up there, it was crazier than it was even here in Anchorage. Um, and I had problems with, with management of the places outside of town. 
it's just difficult to find the quality of management that you needed. And of course, there were, there were a lot of pitfalls in the bar business during the pipeline years. Like what? Well, you know, it's no secret that just about everybody in Alaska was snorting cocaine at the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for one thing. The other thing is that uh, it was a wild and crazy time. It was the Wild West. So what was the bar scene like back then? I mean, you, you say Wild West. I mean, can you describe that a little bit? Maybe paint me a picture? I mean, I, mean, I know you're a storyteller here. Yeah, I'm not a, not nearly as good an impromptu storyteller <laughs> as I am sitting down writing it. But uh, during the pipeline period, it was like somebody pried a rock loose down in the lower 48, and every no good, low life, you know, in California crawled up the Alcan and was at my front door. <laughs> and you'd say, I'm sorry, sir, but you can't take that drink out with you. Fuck you, boom, and. The fight was on. Yeah. I never wore jewelry on my hands because I was working the floor with my doorman, and, and I knew I was going to get in a fight every night. You know, and all we were doing was trying to protect our premises and you know, run a lawful operation. Yeah. Um, protect our employees and have a safe place, but it was tough to do. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, did you guys have any lawyers on staff? Well, my partner was a lawyer originally, but, I mean, people threatened to sue me. I mean, that was the quickest way in the world to get 86 out of coups, mm -hmm. threatened to sue us. <laughs> yeah. First, I'd say, get in line. And then I'd say, get the fuck out of here. <laughs> Don't come back. <laughs> okay, so you mentioned 86 did you guys have a list? Oh, we had, I'm, a, you we had did, a huge okay. list. <laughs> <laughs> and did, did it have photos next to it or what? Uh, you know, it got more sophisticated as the years went by, but originally we just had this list and it wasn't as, uh, wasn't as systematic as later years. I mean, later years we were computerized and a picture would come up and a flag would come out and because right when you walk into Coots, you have a metal detector and yeah, you have to give them your ID. And, and the doorman would, would get flagged right away by this new system as soon as they'd show their ID. But hell, in the old days, uh, these guys that were 86, they were smart enough to know, you know, not to come in on a certain night when such and such was working there. Yeah. Because such and such knew who they were and they weren't going to get in. But, you know, you'd be walking through the place and you'd see... Some guy there, how the hell did you get in here? <laughs> oh, we kicked you out. <laughs> uh, and the, the watering hole of last resort was the friendly fireside lounge right down the block, just right next door practically. If you had a pulse, you could get served there. And um, after they'd been kicked out of our place, they knew well enough to behave down there because if they got kicked out of there, they'd have absolutely no place to drink. Yeah. Here we had our, a bar full of people that were 86 that, you know, right down the street from us, which is <laughs> when the place closed and I bought the property, all the vandalism in the neighborhood stopped. Really? Yeah. Because all of... Uh all know, the people that had a beef with Chokuts were gone. Really? Okay. They weren't right, they weren't right next door <laughs> getting drunk and, you know, leaving and going, oh, fucking coots, you know, throw a beer bottle through the window or whatever. So what did Anchorage look like back then? I mean, when you look at Anchorage today and you think about, you know, either how far it's come or... Well, when I drive down Spinard Road today, I don't see any hookers. Yeah. <laughs> You might not be driving down the right spot. <laughs> <laughs> Could be. Um, and I don't see any Korean massage parlors. They used to be all over the place. Um, that's with the, that whole redevelopment of, uh, you know, Spinard Road from Minnesota out toward the airport there. That, that got rid of a whole bunch of them that were all along there in little houses. I don't know. It's... Uh, I guess that maybe it's just all what you're used to, but during the rough and tumble times of being in the bar business up here, like in the, the 70s, uh, which were 
really it was more dangerous then than it was during the pipeline period. In what way? There was just serious kind of lawlessness at the time. Although during the pipeline, it was kind of out of control. Not kind of out of control. It was out of control. But it wasn't, you know, as wasn't as what I'd call dangerous. Um, like it was in the pipeline days? Before the pipeline oh, days. Oh, before the pipeline days were more dangerous yeah. than the pipeline days. Yeah, it was more serious. But even then, I mean, you didn't have young punks driving around with, you know, nine millimeters. Are you Do, talking about like today? Yeah. Okay. And it's, it's more dangerous today than it was in the 70s. Really? When it was the Wild West. Okay. Because you got these morons out there that, uh, you know, drive around with their boom boxes and their nine millimeters and no respect for human life. Why do you think it's more dangerous? I mean, what... What has put it in that? Well, there's certainly a lot more homicides. Um, I mean, everybody carried a gun in the 70s. I carried one for years. I wouldn't go anywhere without one. Mm -hmm. But people didn't just shoot other people (laughs) as readily then as they seem to today. Maybe it's just my perspective, but um, these kids today are just crazy. If I look at it, just my perspective on Anchorage. Uh, and I think a lot of people have this same perspective, at least judging by comments on <laughs> online, mm-hmm. um, that they, they say that it's it's more dangerous now than it ever has been. It is. But at the same time, I think that information is faster and it's more readily available. Even, you know, I'm 31. Even when I was growing up, you didn't really, you didn't hear about stuff as fast as you do now. And so... It, it was easier to be in the dark about, like, say, what's happening, you know, if you live downtown, what's happening on the south side. Or if you live on in the east side, in Muldoon area, it, it took a little while to figure out maybe what happened downtown. You know, you don't get it that same night like you do nowadays. Well, I tell you, during the heights of the activities downtown, when that downtown was really jumping, you know, yeah, I guess it still is. But, you know, it's like 10 years ago or so when downtown first became really popular place to hang out maybe it was 15 20 years time flies you know but i was down there a couple of different times late at night and i didn't feel safe it was like a a a street party you know an unsupervised street party and uh it was just kids roaming i mean they weren't even hanging out in the bars all the troubles is associated with the bars down there and there were some problematic bars down there but a lot of the activity, the illegal activity, the shootings, the stabbings, and stuff that happened, they didn't happen in the bars. They happened out on the street. It was just, it wasn't very well supervised. I can remember walking down the main streets in, in uh, Austin, Texas, years back when I was down there looking for entertainment. Really well-behaved people there, you know, out partying at night and everything, mm-hmm. but well-behaved, not out of control, like, you know, downtown Anchorage was. Of course, in Austin, they had cops patrolling the area on horseback. And, uh, you know, you you knew that if you didn't behave, I guess, that something was going to happen to you. But downtown Anchorage for a while was just stupid. I, I mean, I guess you would you would definitely know because, you know, you were in the thick of it. You mm-hmm. know, you were at the center of the, the bar scene. And so you have, uh, I guess to stereotype a little bit, you have people that make problems and, you know, they're going to go to the bar. They're going to go that, you know, that element. And so you're around them. Have you noticed an obvious difference in the bar scene nowadays? Then I don't go out anymore. (laughs) Well, I mean, you live, you live right next to Coots. So, but it's not as, it's not as busy as it used to be. I mean, we don't have an overflow of cars all over the neighborhood now at night on weekends. I mean, that lot right there, it's... Behind coots. Yeah. I mean, it, it hardly, they don't even need it anymore. Um, Why do you think that is? Well, because business isn't as, as uh, big as it used to be. You know, they don't get the crowds that they used to. And part of it is... Uh, they're competing against that hub of activity downtown. I mean, I competed against that. It's difficult for a long time toward the end of my 
years in the operation. We successfully competed against a lot of different bars that targeted our crowd, and we did that over generations, uh, and we're able to captivate that next generation. But when downtown became that hub of activity, it's practically impossible to compete with all of downtown. Because people go, they go bar hopping. They like to be, yeah. You just go down there and they stay there all night going from bar to bar and drinking in their cars and roaming around the streets and so forth. You know, you mentioned earlier, you know, people driving around with their boom boxes and their their nine millimeters and then uh, people kind of bar hopping or drinking in their cars. And I think that it is, uh, it's a comment on where things are now. I mean, where do you, where do you get that impression well, we were right here in the middle of it. I mean, yeah. uh, people popping off their guns at night at the end. When, when the bar closes, they go out to their cars, and all of a sudden you hear this rat tat 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 you know, Most of that stuff goes unreported, you know, but you hear it. Um, I'm not sure what your question is. You know, I guess I'm just trying to make a comparison, and, and really I'm kind of working through it too. You know, I, I don't know what the answer is, Okay, here's the thing is I really like hearing um, stories about how Anchorage used to be, you know, back in the Wild West days, just because I think they're fun stories. And mm -hmm. it, it's like, it's a, it was such a different place. And some of the stories that I've heard about, say, Chilkoots or even the parking lot um, from back in the day are pretty crazy. All the fights that have happened, um, people getting in fight inside of Coots, coming out and, you know, all of a sudden having a gun. You know, mm. and shooting the other person, and that's happened. Yeah. I guess what what was it like having your own bar involved in situations where people have died? Going off of what I I just mentioned, uh, whether it was a confrontation between patrons or even involving like Coots employees. Well, it was dreadful. Mm -hmm. um, that's the part of the business that I most uh, disliked. Uh, that I most. I've, well, I just, who the hell wants somebody killed on their premises or around it? And, you know, if if, if, if there's a shooting in a church or a grocery store or uh, at a gas station, it's a shame. If it happens at Joku Charlie's, it's a crime. It's an outrage. Somebody's got to be at fault. Somebody needs to be responsible. What kind of an operation are you running there? There's a double standard. I mean, there have been shootings in cars, stores all around town. Shootings at both the daily, the daily News and The Times. There have been shootings in churches. Nobody ever asked Larry Carr what kind of an operation you're running here. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, and I always chafed at that. Um, at that double standard, it, it, it upset me. But the fact that it happened at all upset me, too. I certainly carried my share of, uh, well, I guess you could say, the feeling of, of being responsible to some degree. Um, but if you can't live with the consequences of that sort of activity, then you shouldn't be in the bar business, I guess. People get drunk and they do stupid things. Yeah. And... You can, you can put all the kinds of rules you want into effect, and and try your damnedest, and have you know the best security that you can muster, and it's still going to happen. You can't stop it. So that was the thing that I disliked about being in the business the, the most. Is there a um, I don't know a specific situation that when you say that, your mind kind of goes back to? Oh, there's several of them. Uh, I don't really want to dwell on any of them in detail, but certainly uh, periods where we got lots and lots of bad publicity because of incidents that happened on the premise that, you know, nothing that we could have done would have prevented them from happening. Mm-hmm. Um, but doesn't make it any easier to live with. You know, the older I get, the the less that I actually go to bars. 
I maybe I don't know if that's a symptom of uh, getting older, but well, you know that's a sign of maturity. <laughs> <laughs> Is it okay? <laughs> you, if you get any sense at all, you do grow out of it after a period of time. <laughs> you know, you get married and you, know, you get a job and you take it seriously, <laughs> and you have kids and you try to raise them properly, and be then a, they go to the be bars, a, be a, a be a parent instead of a, a bar fly. <laughs> Yeah, it's a good thing. But when I do do go to the bars, and on occasion I, I will go to Coots, I like the fact that I have to walk through a metal detector, mm-hmm. you know, because I know that when I'm past it, you know, and, I, and I'm cleared, um, I also know that other people are cleared and that hopefully all the people inside have been cleared and that that's just one less piece of violence that you have to worry about. Right. But, you know, if, if, when you first put it in, any operation that puts one of those at the front door, a lot of the reaction that you get from the public is negative. Not only do people not like going through it, but they just by the mere, f- I mean, why have you got that there? I mean, this must be a dangerous place. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, if everybody had the reaction that you have to it, I would... I would be more pleased. Um, you actually run people off by by trying to protect them because they get the impression that it's a dangerous place because you're trying to make them safe. Yeah. <laughs> when did you guys install the the metal detectors? Like when did they first appear? Gee, I don't remember. It's been quite a while, um, and. We didn't. We never used it all the time either. We used it when the place was busy. Uh, we'd turn it on and off. I mean, just the fact that you had there, that you had it there, kept a lot of people straight because they knew it was there. I remember in the last few years that I was operating the place. You know, we get those planters that run from the southwest corner along the south side with the trees and the shrubs and so forth. Mm-hmm. Well, I would clean those out myself and take care of those shrubs and the, put flowers in there in the spring, et cetera. And I would, I would find um, knives in there all the time, little folding knives. The people would drop, the, you know, they'd just drop them in there and then they'd, they'd get drunk and they forgot they put them there <laughs> and they'd drive off without them. Well, they dropped them in there because they knew that they were going to be going through a metal detector. Yeah, yeah. Gee, it, what's uh, so you said you used to find knives? I mean, anything else? Never found it, never found any pistols. Yeah, yeah. They probably put those in their put car. Put those in their car. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> um. Okay. So is there is there a tradition called the ptarmigan call? That's in the birdhouse. That's in the birdhouse. What's that all about? No, well, the birdhouse was my first business. Um, the original birdhouse out on the Seward Highway it used to be in Bird Creek, and it was right along the highway there and. Myself and a couple of guys that I was raised with here in Anchorage, uh, we bought it from the estranged wife of the original owner. Her name was uh, Eddie Halla, and Cliff Brandt, her estranged husband, had, had been the guy that created it. We bought it from Eddie Halla, who got it in a divorce, and uh, we owned it for a year. And... Uh, we sold it to Dick DeLac, who had it for many years thereafter until he got killed in a plane crash, and then his wife ran it until it burned down. And um, we used to talk about, when we had it, what it would be like to put it on a flatbed and bring it into town where all the people were, because it was, uh, you know, limited clientele being that far out the highway. Sure. Well, at the time, um, Anchorage didn't have an Alaskan-themed bar. It had um, nightclubs and strip clubs and neighborhood bars, but didn't have anything with an Alaskan theme. And uh, Fairbanks had the Malamute, and Juno had the Red Dog, even little Homer had the Salty Dog. So I convinced one of my customers uh, at the birdhouse that it would be a good idea to open a place with an Alaskan theme in town. And... uh, we borrowed twenty thousand dollars from his mother, and about a year to the day from the day that we sold the birdhouse, I opened up Choku Charlie's in Anchorage, and then, of course, decades later, 
um, when the birdhouse is burned down, I'm running down the bike trail one day. Wait, the birdhouse burnt down? Yeah, it burned down right to the ground. Really? Right, right here on Spinard? No, 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 no. The one out, the original out on the sewer okay, highway. Okay, okay, okay. And I bought the rights to it. I'm running down the bike trail one day and I, I get this idea about attaching the birdhouse to Choku Charlie's. And so I got a hold of uh, Susan Delac, who was uh, Dick Delac's widow and who had been running the place when it burned down. It had been about five years since it burned down. And I uh, told her that I was interested in buying the name from her. And she'd had a lot of people interested in it, but she was convinced that I would do a proper job of rebuilding it, recreating it. And so she sold me the name and... And it just so happened that the area behind the bar where the birdhouse is now, was it was an open area where we'd had horseshoes and that sort of thing going on. The birdhouse fit exactly into that spot. We had an as-built. We had uh, photos and, and an actual scale model of the bar. And I had worked there for a year, so I was intimately familiar with it. I thought, God, it's just brilliant making the birdhouse a part of the club. So, uh, proves that I have a good idea every 30 years or so. <laughs> so our crew built it, um, and at a certain point, they were putting the bar in, you know, with the angle, and I was in the office just a couple buildings away, and they came over and they said, we got the bar in, got to come over and see it. So I went over and I looked at it and I said, it's the wrong angle. It doesn't, it doesn't have enough of a slant to it. And I wanted it to be right. I wanted it to be exactly like the old birdhouse because it was everybody's favorite little bar. I didn't want people coming in there saying, this isn't the birdhouse. The floor slanted. No, no, the bar top. Okay. The bar top slanted it. Okay. People thought that the earthquake did it, but it didn't. It's just that there was no foundation out there. <laughs> it's, a, it's a thing. But that was one of the entertaining things about the place. You know, we used to give them what we call skid-proof napkins so that their drink didn't slide down the bar. Because if you didn't have a skid-proof napkin, you took your hand off, <laughs> there it went, you know. So anyway, I said to my property manager, Craig, uh, the angle's not right. It's got to be steeper. And he said, well, Mike, we can't do it. He said, if we raised it up any higher on the outside, you're not going to be able to see in. And if and if if we have to lower it on the other side, we'll have to tear the whole floor out. I said, start tearing. <laughs> so I was really proud of... Uh, it's a, it's an exact replica. The only thing in it that that actually was in the old birdhouse is the stove. Though. The stove survived the fire. Imagine that. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, even the stickers around the inside of the bar, everything. I mean, it's all exactly the same. Same dimensions. The only thing's different is that it's got a sprinkler system in it. And it's been a really, really popular part of the Choku Charlie's. So I kind of like that circular business, you know, where the birdhouse is the parent of Choku Charlie's, and then decades later, Choku Charlie's is the parent of the birdhouse. So now that we know about the birdhouse, what's the ptarmigan call? Oh, well, um, it's kind of stupid. Most people know that something's up when they're doing it, and, they, and m most of them are good sports. Occasionally, you get somebody that that uh, gets upset about it, but it's a it's a little likes to look like a little flugelhorn, you know. It's got little things where you put your fingers, and they've what they've done is they poured flour inside of it, and they they give them this bullshit story about how if they go over by the window and blow it, that there's some some ptarmigan out there, and they'll come <laughs> land on the windowsill. And so they go over there and they do it and they blow on it and it blows power powder all over their face. It's it's just a stupid gimmick for tourists and and they get to sign a little book that they and get a certificate that they blew the horn, the ptarmigan horn or the ptarmigan whistle. And then of course when they go to sign their name in the book, it's a it's a pen that blows up when they go to sign their name too. So it's one thing leads to another, you know. That's great. You know, um, I've read a few of your stories before that, that appear in, in the Anchorage Press. Mm -hmm. um, and one of them, while I was at the Anchorage Press, was about a woman. And it was like, the graphic that we put to it was a, was a devil. 
and it was oh, yeah. and it was uh, an employee Wanda. of yours, Wicked Wanda. Wanda. Yeah, Wanda. Yeah. Um, so I guess going off of that, I mean, you 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 or Coots employs some pretty uh, you know characters. What can you tell me about about those people? I mean, is there one that maybe comes to the forefront of your mind? Like, for example, <laughs> I just remembered this. Uh, me and and my wife Carrie took um, her cousin and her cousin's husband to Chilkoots because her cousin Amy just loves you know kind of gimmicky stuff like you, you know fun like local color. Mm-hmm. And so we we took them to the uh, to the bar with the underwear. What was that? The birdhouse. Oh, that's the birdhouse. Okay, so yeah, okay, so we took them to the birdhouse, and the uh, the bartender. This woman uh, lifted up like an apron, and there's this there's this big old floppy like uh, schlong. yeah schlong yeah <laughs> penis. <laughs> so is there is there a prerequisite for your employees? Like they gotta have a a good sense of humor, or they gotta? I mean, what are you looking for? Well, it takes a special kind of person to work the birdhouse. Um, anybody anybody can work the South Long Bar during the day. I would prefer to have uh, people look. That- can work the birdhouse, work in the South Long Bar too. You know, I mean, when I first started out in the business, we didn't have professional entertainment. We were the entertainment. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, I used to go to work with a pair of bunny boots on and uh, and a long handled underwear and a jock strap, fur-lined jock strap on the outside, <laughs> an Australian outback hat and a kazoo in my mouth. And I another thing too, like I found this World War One uniform. With leg wrappings, the whole deal, and total outfit. And then I found a, well, it's fabric, you know, a fabric flying, aces flying hat, you know, from World War One and goggles. Yeah, yeah, okay. And I put a scarf around my neck, and I was Rocky the Flying Motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> it was a, a takeoff on Rocky and Bullwinkle. Yeah, know, yeah. They were popular at the time. And that's the kind of the way I, that's the way I bartended, and. Um, and that's the kind of thing you have to be able to do in the birdhouse if you're going to work in there. Um, one of the better guys that we had, people that we had in there, not you know, guys or gals. I mean, Wanda's is certainly a character. Um, but one of them was Matt, uh, Madigan, he went by. Matt was a stand-up comedian and a very, very fast, witty, funny guy. Um, He's not there any longer. If I was still there, he would be there. But he's not there any longer. Fantastic bartender. And God, was he was just hilarious. And he's a big draw. Wanda's a big draw. I tell you, a friend of mine with Rotary, who's a past uh, district governor, brought a bunch of Russians. Well, they there were a bunch of Russians that came over from Siberia a few years ago. And... Uh, he brought them to my place down in Halibut Cove for a long weekend. And they had heard about the birdhouse, and they'd heard about the Russian room at Choku Charlie's, and they, they wanted to see them both. So it just so happened that I was coming back to town the same time they were leaving Halibut Cove and coming back. So I met them in the bar, and I gave them a tour of the Russian room and the Soviet walk and all that, and they were, they were uh, suitably impressed. And... And we wound up the day by going into the birdhouse. And I made sure that Wanda was working that day. Now, Wanda can't make a decent margarita. I like margaritas, and I tried to teach her how to make them because I like to drink one once in a while. I've tried to teach her how to make a margarita, and it's, I don't know, it's just she doesn't get it. Um, and so we have this ongoing joke about her and margaritas, right? So anyway, these Russians come in, and she pulls out, Every birdhouse joke and every she does she runs them through the mill everything that the that's available out there you know like if you order a, a particular beer we have one keg out there and it's one kind of beer but if you want to if you order another kind of draft beer we've got a box full of handles and so she'll just grab that handle so you you want a, an Alaskan white. She's got an Alaskan white handle there, and she just takes the one that's on there off and puts that one on, and she pours it for you. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and, uh, 
And you know, there are all kinds of things like that. Plus, uh, you know, the, the, the birdhouse pickles. Uh, it's got uh, hormones of, of wolverine in it. You know, if you can eat one of those pickles, you're, you're a better man than I am. It's actually wolverine hormones? Well, that's that's what we tell them. Okay, okay. <laughs> so anyway, there are all kinds of these things. Well, she runs them through everything. And uh, I'm sitting there across the bar from him, laughing my ass off. I get tears coming down my cheeks. And this goes on for, you know, an hour and a half, two hours. She's pulling all these routines on her. And the apron with the big schlong and everything. <laughs> I'm sure that when they got back to Siberia, that's the only thing they talked about was their trip to the birdhouse bar. So anyway, they have this fantastic time. And, uh, and they finally leave the bar to go out to the airport. And Wanda turns around to me and she puts her hands on her hips and she says, now, Mr. Gordon, do you think it's really important I know how to make a margarita or not? <laughs> I said, no, Wanda, it's not important at all, dear. Just threw it right back at you. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. So the birdhouse has a bunch of underwear everywhere. Yeah. Uh, stapled to the wall. Yeah. It's all donated by customers. Where did that come from? The old birdhouse. And do you know was, how that tradition got started? I don't. I don't know exactly. But um, it took on uh, a life of its own. Yeah. I wonder if it's even better that you don't know. Because you can kind of like, I've gone in there before. And I've thought, like, I wonder who was the first. Well, if you gave me a little time, I'd think of something. Okay. <laughs> something creative. <laughs> If I had reason to think of one, make something up. When did you sell Coots? Uh, September of uh, 2015. Okay, so okay, so there's been a little bit of time now. Um, now that you have some some distance, maybe not physical distance, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, most of my time I spent in Halibut Cove, so <laughs> I do sort of have the distance. But is there anything that you would have done differently? Absolutely not. No, it's been a wild ride. It was fantastic. Um, wasn't always fun, but it was never boring. It was always a challenge. It gave me a canvas upon which to uh, be creative. Provided me with an excellent uh, living for many, many years. It allowed me to climb the seven summits do all that traveling. I wouldn't trade the seventh summits attempt for anything. Five for five years, that's all I did was just climb mountains. And what got you on that? Well, I first I climbed Denali. I was going through counseling, trying to save my third marriage to my third and favorite wife. <laughs> and, uh, and I had a problem with cocaine. And uh, I... I wanted to be able to say when we inevitably got to that subject in counseling that I didn't do that anymore. So I decided to climb Denali and uh, break out of my, um, find a new set of friends, you know, and uh, refocus my life. Substitute um, one unhealthy habit for, for something a little bit healthier. Well, one dangerous but healthy one yeah. for one dangerous and unhealthy one so it worked yeah saved my marriage and i, I like to say that i i uh, started mountain climbing to save my marriage and quit mountain climbing to keep it because after five years of it my wife was getting weary of it and i'd promised her i wasn't going back to everest twice so you mentioned that a while you mentioned earlier that there was a lot of cocaine in Alaska and then you just mentioned that that you had a problem with it mm -hmm. um do you think that because there was so much of it here and it was maybe so normalized is that just about everybody that I knew during the pipeline period and and after did it you go to parties in people's houses and half the party would be in the bath be in the bathrooms snorting <laughs> cocaine and, you know, at the Captain Cook Hotel, if, if they weren't snorting it off of their tables with $100 bills, they were on the 13th floor of the elevator doing it. Yeah, it's just everybody was doing it. That was, that's kind of one of the 
untold little dirty secrets of the pipeline period. That everyone was doing cocaine. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Just about everybody. People snorted up their homes and their cars and their relationships and their health until there was nothing left but a paranoid, broke shadow of their former self with messed up nose membranes. <laughs> Deviated septum. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, at least I recognized that the party was over before it was too late for me. Yeah, some people don't get that chance. No, a lot of people didn't. You know, I look back on people that I ran around with in the 70s and 80s, they're all dead. Not all of them, but most of them. Do you think that the drug use was a symptom of the times? Yeah. Or it was, okay. Yeah, I do. Yeah, it was just, it was the cool thing to do. It was in. It was hip. It was a lot of fun at first. Were people like snorting lines off the bar? Things oh, like sure. That? Yeah. Okay. Not if I was looking, but <laughs> you know, yeah. Go to the bathroom like a like <laughs> normal human being. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was it was prevalent. Yeah. It was it was everywhere. It was ubiquitous. And you know, people were making. They were driving a bus for God's sake. Somebody that never had a decent job in their life. They're driving a bus up on the pipeline. Uh, making $2,000 a week with mm -hmm. room and board. So they, they had expendable cash. <laughs> <laughs> they were going to places for vacation they'd never heard of a year before, buying new cars and hanging out all night at the massage parlors and the gambling joints and standing in my bar, six-packing each other, seeing who could outspend the other one. It was, it was wild and crazy. And snorting cocaine to stay up all night. You had to be a wide awake drunk, you know? You didn't want to miss anything. No. <laughs> <laughs> so if you could tell your younger self something, either, you know, keep going, keep doing what you're doing with, with chill coots, uh, stop doing cocaine, maybe something along those lines. I mean, what would, what would you tell your younger self? I'd have sold the place the day that the moose's tooth opened up. Because they created an unlevel playing field, and uh, the handwriting was on the was on the wall. Yeah, I could see it, but I didn't uh, didn't realize just how serious it was. How was it unlevel? Well, you make your own beer, sell your own beer, bullshit the assembly, and tell them that you're not going to have live entertainment, and then go ahead and do it anyway. And you know. When you make your own beer and you sell it, you're a good guy. But if you just sell it, you're a bad guy. Really? Is that is that the perception? Well, you know, you, there is this public perception of the bar business, you know, that and liquor, uh, booze, um, and whoever you know sells it is suspect at least. But if you make your own beer, that's different. You're a good guy. Because you're, you're a not part of now. the same group. I, I don't know exactly how it works. I just know that that's the result. Well, I think the the perception about breweries is that you know it's a craft, right? You craft yeah. beers, and right. so but you're you know, still selling them. You're making the same product that the guy down down the street who's got a neighborhood bar that sells it is not considered in the same league that you are. And the other thing about Chokuts is that the I was dealing at one time with my, the grandkids of my original patrons, but the millennials never bought into it. They never bought into Coots. Why do you think that is? Um, well, the millennials are different. You know, they're, they've been tough for a lot of people to, to deal with. Um, it's hard to explain. They go to places like, say, the Buckaroo Club. You know? mm -hmm. uh, why? I don't know because the Buckaroo Club didn't want them, <laughs> you know? Well, that, that's what you see with um, hipster areas. In the in, Pioneer downtown, you know? That yeah. was similar bar to the Buckaroo, older clientele. They just took it over. Why don't you think they've taken over Coots yet? They don't like it. You I've know, always they, liked... These are the guys that uh, decide they want to drink Pabst Blue Ribbon, right? 
Is that not, is that not cool? <laughs> no, they think it's cool. Okay. <laughs> Nobody else thought it was cool until they came along and decided that it was cool. Yeah, I don't know. It's a it's a tough question. I think you're right, though. I think that people are trying to uh, figure out the puzzle that that is millennials. I can I can agree with yeah, that. I, mean, I, I know one. that it's not just me and and the bar that I own. I, I mean, it was. I talked to other people in the industry about it in general, you know, people, wholesalers, for instance, trying to get them to drink different things. They're really tough. Mm -hmm. They don't like being advertised to, for one thing. So I graduated with a degree in advertising Mm -hmm. um, and I hate advertising. Like everything that I have, say TV, right? I I have Hulu and I pay the extra amount. So I don't have Just any so you don't have to watch it. And, and same thing, you know, Netflix doesn't have advertising, but I, yeah. I absolutely hate advertising. And I mean, that's why this podcast is supported by patrons on a platform called Patreon, where it's completely supported by the people that support the podcast. So it's advertising free mm-hmm. because I dislike advertising so much because when you include advertising within something, it affects the content, especially when you're looking at um, looking at journalism. So there's, there's this element of manipulation involved in it. And I think that, that having studied it for so long, I see that in everything, you know, whether it's in, in journalism, whether it's newspapers, and I see it actually affecting the content. So where I'm coming from is nothing affects this content. You know, we're, we're sitting here just chatting. You know, I, I, I want to talk to you because I genuinely think you're interesting. And I, I, I really like, um, I like Coots and what it stands for. You know, having been raised by um, somebody who started a business here in Alaska that was a mainstay for, you know, from 88 to 2006. You know, I know what goes into building a business. And I know how difficult it can be here in Alaska because things change. And so I don't want advertising or somebody else's idea of how this should go to affect, you know, say this conversation, right? So that that's kind of where I'm coming from with advertising. I don't know if that helps you give any insight into a millennial. <laughs> <laughs> Not much. You're Not still much. <laughs> you're still a mystery. Still <laughs> There's a lot of advertising I don't like too, but um I mean, I like some if it's clever and it's funny and uh, entertaining. Sometimes, even if it's corny, uh, it doesn't bother me. But, you know, like this guy, Mike Lavelle, or whatever his stupid name is, the guy that <laughs> my pillow. Oh, yeah. I actually have one of those. <laughs> uh, I, I would, God, I wouldn't use one of those if it was, I'd rather sleep, I'd rather put my head on a rock <laughs> or, a, or a cactus than put it on my pillow. Yeah, I know what I'm getting you for Christmas. <laughs> I'm getting Don't your cactus. You dare. That guy is a, he's a public nuisance. If he came on now, if that TV was going, I'd have to get up and go hit the mute button. And I'm down in Halibut Cove about a week ago, and I hear him off in the distance. I'm in the living room. My wife's in the kitchen, and the end of the ad comes on, and it's for the best and she's singing along with it. <laughs> I said, Shelly, stop that, you traitor. <laughs> Hate that guy. So uh, to, to wrap this up, you split your time between Anchorage and Halibut Cove. You've mentioned Halibut Cove a few times. Yeah. What do you do out in Halibut Cove? Right. Um, I've got an acre and a half of lawn to take care of in the spring, summer, and fall. You know, it takes me, whew, takes me four hours, uh, you know, just to mow the lawn. My wife's got all kinds of shrubs and flowers and gardens and so forth, I'm, and I'm the... I'm the gardening factotum. Wait, did you say My four wife hours? Is the, yeah. It takes you four hours to mow the lawn? Yeah. Man, that's great. I Something that I don't think a lot of people know about me is I love mowing the lawn. <laughs> well, this wasn't part of the plan. <laughs> now, maybe not for four hours, But though. it's so beautiful when I get done with it, you know, that it's almost worth it. And, you know, living out in the wilderness like that is uh, it's more work than than living in town. Um, like when I go back down there on Sunday, I got a, I got a, about 
two cords of wood in front of our equipment shed that I got to split with a log splitter. But it keeps me busy. It's 105 steps from the floating dock. Excuse me. It's 105 steps from the ramp up to the house. And that's after you do the ramp from the floating dock. And the ramp, you know, if it's high tide, it could be horizontal. But at low tide, it's practically straight up. Yeah. So, but we've we got a boom and a and a tram and, and a cart, you know, for carrying stuff up. But still, you live down there, nothing gets there unless it's pushed or carried or hauled or pulled. You know, it's this sounds like a challenge for anybody. I mean, why would you do this to yourself? Because my wife likes living there, and uh, she wouldn't be happy anyplace else. <laughs> if the wife ain't happy, nobody's happy. <laughs> All right. On that note. Yeah, on that note. (laughs) Thank you so much for being on the show, Mike. You're welcome. You can support local grassroots journalism at patreon.com slash crude magazine. If you're not familiar with Patreon, it's a platform that makes it easy for you to support content that matters to our community for as little as $1 a month. Crude Conversations is written, hosted, and produced by me. Cody Liska for Crude Magazine. Intro music was produced by Alcoda Beats. 